welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the January 2015 edition of Sobriety 101. Um, for those of you who are here for the first time, uh, we are reading through the white book and looking at all the ways that it tells us uh, we can practice a different kind of walk, a different way of living, and find that when we're in that uh, on that basis for living, we have the power to stay sober one day at a time, sometimes one moment at a time. Um, we began uh, our course a few months ago with um, page 77 from the white book. Uh, and it turns out that after beginning on uh, page 63 where it says getting started, we have now gotten up to page 77, so we're reading through this and discussing it in light of our own experience. Um, before we begin, let's go to the suggested readings at the back of the book. Um, and on page 203, would you please read the problem, Lauren? Yeah, the problem. Many of us felt inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. Our insides never matched what we saw on the outsides of others. Early on, we came to feel disconnected from parents, from peers, from ourselves. We tuned out with fantasy and masturbation. We plugged in by drinking in the pictures, the images, and pursuing the objects of our fantasies. We lusted and wanted to be lusted after. We became true addicts, sex with self, promiscuity, adultery, dependency relationships, and more fantasy. We got it through the eyes. We bought it. We sold it. We traded it. We gave it away. We were addicted to the entry, the tease, the forbidden. The only way we knew to be free of it was to do it. Please connect with me and make me whole, we cried with outstretched arms. Lusting after the big fix, we gave away our power to others. This produced guilt, self-hatred, remorse, emptiness, and pain, and we were driven ever inward, away from reality, away from love, lost inside ourselves. Our habit was our habit made true intimacy impossible. We could never know real union with another because we were addicted to the unreal. We went for the chemistry, the connection that had the magic, because it bypassed intimacy and true union. Fantasy corrupted the real, lust killed love. First addicts, then love cripples. We took from others to fill up what was lacking in ourselves. Conning ourselves time and again that the next one would save us, we were really losing our lives. Thanks, Lee, would you please read the solution? 
I'm Lee Fitzaholic. This is the solution. We saw that our problem was threefold, physical, emotional, and spiritual. Healing had to come about in all three. The crucial change in attitude began when we admitted we were powerless, that our habit had us whipped. We came to meetings and withdrew from our habit. For some, this meant no sex with themselves or others, including not getting into relationships. For others, it also meant drying out and not having sex with a spouse for a time to recover from loss. We discovered that we could stop, that not feeding the hunger didn't kill us, that sex was indeed optional. There is hope for freedom, and we began to feel alive. Encouraged to continue, we turned more and more away from our isolate, isolating obsession with sex and self and turned to God and others. All of this was scary. We couldn't see the path ahead except that others had gone that way before. Each new step of surrender felt it would be off the edge into oblivion. But we took it, and instead of killing us, surrender was killing the obsession. We had stepped into the light, into a whole new way of life. The fellowship gave us monitoring and support to keep us from being overwhelmed, a safe haven where we could finally face ourselves. Instead of covering our feelings with compulsive sex, we began exposing the roots of our spiritual emptiness and hunger, and the healing began. As we faced our defects, we became willing to change. Surrendering them broke the power they had over us. We began to be more comfortable with ourselves and others for the first time without our drug. Forgiving all who had injured us and without injuring others, we tried to right our own wrongs. At each amends, more the dreadful load of guilt dropped from our shoulders until we could lift our heads, look the world in the eye, and stand free. We began practicing a positive sobriety, taking the actions of love to improve our relations with others. We were learning how to give, and the measure we gave was the measure we got back. We were finding what none of the substitutes had ever supplied. We were making the real connection. We were home. Thanks, Lee. Okay, so um, back to page 77. Um, We are emphasizing reading the literature and identifying instructions. Uh, which are not necessarily stated as do this, do that, but um, if the uh, writers of the literature did something uh, and we want to thoroughly follow their path, then uh, we ought to do it and see if we got the result that they got. Um, So um, with that in mind, someone please uh, start reading from the top of page 77. How it works, the practical reality. This title is adapted from Chapter 5 of Alcoholics Anonymous, entitled How It Works. The books Alcoholics Anonymous and 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, 12 and 12, constitute the basic text of the original 12-step program. This section is not intended to be a comprehensive exposition of the steps. Our aim here is to try to get at the essential purpose of each step or group of steps so that it can be readily put into action. The essay program is a program of action. Okay, let's break that down. Um, So, um, the books Alcoholics Anonymous and 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, the 12 and 12, constitute the basic texts of the original 12-step program. What does that mean? What's a basic text? 
foundation. Yeah, yeah it's just the foundation. And um, also interesting is this language which I've been using and which we'll uh, eventually find in the big book about the basis for living. So uh, we are wanting to change our basis for living um, in, in, in this program. That's the purpose of this program, uh, these steps. And uh, these basic texts are fundamental to, uh, to doing that. They, they represent the experience of the original 12-step fellowship in changing uh, one's basis for living. Um, this section is not intended to be a comprehensive exposition of the steps. What section are they referring to? What are the possibilities here? I think it's talking about the next few chapters that outline the steps. That's right. They're named after the steps. Yes. Mostly. All the way up to page uh, 155, we have a series of uh, chapters that are named after the steps in order. Um, and, and to me, this uh, statement indicates that the purpose of this book is not to replace the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is consistent with what we know about the founder of SA and how he recovered from sexaholism. He was in uh, the Los Angeles area in California. There was no such thing as SA. He read an article in Time magazine that uh, made him aware of AA as a recovery program for alcoholism. He contacted AA, found some people who could help him work the program using the basic texts of that original 12-step program, and found that he could apply that plan for living, those instructions on changing the basis for living, he could apply those to the, his, his disease of sexaholism. So that is what he did. So historically, there's a lot of uh, support for the interpretation that this is a statement that directs us to the AA literature uh, for a comprehensive exposition of the steps. This section is not the comprehensive exposition. The comprehensive exposition is in the AA literature. Now, our aim here is to try to get the ex at the essential purpose of each step or group of steps so that they can readily be put into action. Our aim here, meaning in this book. So, we uh, believe, we being myself and my sponsor and uh, a number of other folks uh, in our lineage, we believe that uh, this book is to be used in conjunction with the AA literature. So as we go through these uh, uh, descriptions of the essential purpose of each step, uh, then we are going to refer a lot to the AA literature. And again, the point he says it twice here, our aim here is to describe these steps so that they can be put into action 
then he repeats. The essay program is a program of action. Okay, so here twice he's saying that action. Action is a result of following instruction, uh, either from myself or from something other than myself. And since following my own instructions, the basis of self has not resulted well, I've become willing to try a different basis for living, the basis described in, in, in these books, in this literature. Okay, Lauren, would you please continue? Sure. Everything begins with sobriety. Without sobriety, there is no program of recovery. But without reversing the deadly traits that underlie our addiction, there is no positive and lasting sobriety. To recover from a life based on wrong attitudes, self-obsession, separation, false connections, blindness, and spiritual death requires a program of action that includes a fundamental change in attitude, character, excuse me, fundamental change in attitude, character change, union, the true connection, self-awareness, and spiritual life. Working the principles of the steps as a new way of living has made this happen for us. Okay, let's break this down. Everything begins with sobriety. That statement is the first statement in this paragraph. Without sobriety, there is no program of recovery. He then goes on to talk about how there's more than just stopping acting out. Um, and that the working the steps as a new way of living is what gets the results we're looking for. However, let's not rush past those first two sentences. Everything begins with sobriety. Without sobriety, there is no program of recovery. Um, so, um, just for the record... The literature states clearly that sobriety is necessary for recovery. I've heard people describe personal growth that occurred during a period uh, of relapse or before they came to the fellowship. And I, uh, that is all well and good, uh, but this is not a program of recovery. Um, the... the um, uh, you know, our, our, many of our stories uh, of recovery include periods of relapse or uh, inebriety, um, but uh, we must have sobriety to begin our recovery. Everything begins with sobriety. Um, and then it says, but... So I, I think often people say a but negates everything that comes before it. I think it's very impossible for us to not use that but this way. These statements are very clear. The reason there's a but is because he wants to make it clear that these are not sufficient to, to the program of recovery. The beginning is not the whole journey. You have to have the beginning, but then you have to have the rest of the journey. And so, reversing the deadly traits. There is no positive or lasting sobriety without this. So, he names a number of uh, basic problems um, that uh, have to be um, 
addressed and met in order to get uh, a full life. Um, it's useful to look at uh, the 12 and 12, page 15 here, and um, I'm going to read it um, to you. Um, there's, a, there's a statement on page 15. This is the first page of the foreword in the 12 and 12. This is the third paragraph on page 15. AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become usefully and happily whole. And this statement, um, which I really love, uh, happily and usefully whole, is, I think, a good summary of what is described here when, when he talks about a fundamental change in attitude, character change, union, the true connection, self-awareness, and spiritual life. And then again, he emphasizes working the principles of the steps, as in a program of action, as a new way of living, has made this happy, happen for us. And, you know, I am going to just beat to death the idea that reading, discussing, thinking about, interpreting, uh, and writing articles for Essay Magazine about uh, this um, uh, literature is all well and good, but it rather it, it's rather empty without this essential piece of action. Uh, doing the steps is what makes it work, and if you you, you you don't if you're too uh, if you don't do any of the other stuff, but you work the steps, you'll get these results. And if you do all that other stuff, I've seen people uh, with who, who knew the big book ten times better than me die from this disease because they had read it, they knew how to talk about it, but they weren't willing to do it. Okay, um, please continue reading. No matter how well they're explained, understood, or believed, however, the steps mean nothing unless they're actually worked out in our thinking and living. The steps don't work unless we work them. We will try to present a realistic picture of our own experiences in recovery. We trust this will shed light on the path ahead for others and communicate in a direct and personal way how the program works for us. If it seems our feet are too much on the earth, that is because not one of us has ever worked the steps perfectly. The road was up and down, smooth and rocky. Sometimes we were surrounded by beautiful vistas. At others, we were in a fog and saw nothing but the placing of one foot in front of the other as we trudged ahead. At times, we experienced great joy. At other times, doubt, uncertainty, depression, and fear. At times, it seemed we were running with winged feet. At others, standing still, and still others, that we were losing ground. But we found that once on this road, something deep within told us it was the right path for us. We simply knew it, and that was enough to keep us going. Whatever our experience, we found it to be the greatest adventure of our lives. Thank you, Lauren. <clears throat> okay. Again, he reiterates the point about no matter how well they're explained, understood, or believed... They mean nothing unless they are actually worked out in our thinking and living. Um, <clears throat> one thing to point out is is that I've heard people talk about finishing the steps. And I thoroughly recommend working 
all 12 steps with the guidance of a sponsor who has worked all 12 steps with the guidance of a sponsor, etc. But I cannot finish working the steps while I'm alive. I can leave the program and be finished with the steps that way. But steps 10, 11, and 12 include uh, instructions that I can't complete until I reach today, whatever day-to-day happens to be. So um, I like to think of it in the following way. Knew what the following way was when I started this sentence, and now, um, okay, what were we saying? We're talking about uh, not being able to finish the steps. Yes, um, how can I finish practicing these principles in all my affairs? Doesn't say all my affairs up until today. It says all my affairs. So if I'm going to practice these principles in all my affairs, then That, well, it says I'm going to try to practice them, which implies that I'm not going to get it perfect, and that's definitely the case. But I can't finish step 12 while I'm alive Um, until I've tried to practice it in all my affairs, henceforth. Um, and, and, And I like to think of it in the following way. In the third step, I decided to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. I made this decision. And the rest of the steps uh, after step three are actions which carry out that decision. Now, if I'm going to turn my life over, well, I haven't lived my whole life when I take my third step. I haven't yet lived my whole life today. Um so I can't turn over the part that I haven't got yet. I have to wait until I get it. If I uh, say that I'm going to turn over 10% of my salary to a creditor, um, well, I don't get my salary all at once. I get it over the course of a year. Uh, that clearly means every time I get a check, he's entitled to 10%, he or she is entitled to 10% of that check. But... I can't turn that that uh, money over until I get it. And this is the same sort of thing. I've get, gotten a, uh, every day to live, and so I cannot finish working the steps. Why do I make such a big deal and go on and on about this? Well, I've seen uh, people uh, get into a, a mode of thinking that I am vulnerable to because I've got the same disease everyone else got. Has and I don't want to get into this mode of thinking that that I that I'm done. I've worked the twelve steps with the sponsor, so I'm done with the steps. And this makes it clear that we have to work them out in our thinking and living, and one day at a time. Uh, again, back to the uh, page fifteen of the twelve and twelve. If practiced as a way of life, so a way of life is for life. Um, so we talk about doing this program one day at a time, but we're, we really mean one day at a time in a row. You know, not a day here and a day there. 
Um, so we don't have to work the whole program in one day any more than we have to live our lives in one day, but we do have to work it today. Okay, so anything you guys want to say about uh, the greatest adventure of your lives? I do have a question or comment or... Okay. So, you know, when we, we, we strive to work out and our thinking and living, you know, one day at a time, every day. You know, for me right now, it's hit or miss. Um, so I feel a lot of guilt around that. Okay, do you mean some days, some, some moments you are... I mean, some days I, I don't do my phone call or I don't do my reading. Um, what results do you get? Not feeling good. Not. Um, I mean, there's no no results of acting out. Um, not immediately. Yeah, not immediately. Um, I think it's useful to think of a decision to not. It's 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 one thing if 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 the day goes by and something happened and I really you know uh, my normal routine is really disrupted. That's a completely different thing. But if I consciously decide. I'm not going to go to that meeting that I've agreed I need to go to, or I'm not going to make those phone calls that I've agreed I need to make. Well, then that is a decision to act out. Subtly, unconsciously. That Maybe that sounds crazy, but I find it, it is, it is an assumption that I can't, that can't hurt me. And certainly the disease works below my radar. If you look at page 36 in the big book, well, let's go there now. Why don't, Lee, why don't you start reading at the top of page 36? Yet yeah, he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar for I had been going to it for years. I had eaten there many times during the months. I was sober. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. Okay, um, let's look at the top of the page. Um, I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. If you are sponsoring this man, would you have any suggestions for what he might do at this point? 
make a phone call. Yeah. Talk maybe even live. maybe even call. Who might he call? The sponsor. Yeah, that would be a good idea. What 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 might he do when he calls his sponsor? Ex- say you know I'm irritated. Right, and hopefully ask for directions. Or maybe even if he hasn't gotten that well yet, his sponsor might give him some directions anyway, and he can decide whether or not to follow them. But that's not, he didn't decide to make a phone call. He just, what did he do? He decided to drive to the country. And see one of my prospects for a car. Now, what's wrong with that? Uh, he Well, he's making his own decisions. Yes, and, and yes. Why is that a problem? Why is that a problem? Is that if, if, if a non-alcoholic, non-sexaholic person did that, what would you expect the result would be? They would find some. They might find someone for car. Yeah. Well, the point is, is that this guy's a sexaholic. This guy's an alcoholic. So, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with deciding to drive into the car. But for a sexaholic. What what does this mean? But nothing serious. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. What is that? An excuse, probably. But it's a judgment. Whose judgment? Yes. Yeah. So, so does he, you think maybe he has some experience that indicates it might be unwise for him to trust his own judgment? Yeah. Yes. Well, my point here, we could pick this whole thing apart, but my point here is that. You know, he he says, I had no intention of drinking. And yet, his disease was already in control. Why? Because he didn't call his sponsor. He made his own decision and it put him on a path. Now he says, oh, I had no intention of drinking. But he has no explanation for the fact that suddenly the thought crossed his mind. And then he had a vague sense that he was not being any too smart. What's that? A friend of mine called that the God voice. Why is it vague? Vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart. God's voice is vague when you walk away from Him. If you follow His instructions, you get closer to Him. His voice will become more clear. If you walk away from Him, it gets fuzzier. He wasn't following God's voice anyway. There was probably something up here that maybe told him, you know, these guys had been working with him for a while and all went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. You think that they were telling him he needed to to enlarge his spiritual life? Or do you think they forgot to tell him that? I'm I'm guessing that they, they, they told him that and he chose not to do it. And this is the result he got. So... You know, one little decision. I I can't do this perfectly, but there's a voice. You know, my old sponsor says, don't pray for guidance. Because you're already getting guidance and you're not listening to it. Pray for the ears to hear the guidance and the willingness to follow it. And I think that's true. If I really want to direct my attention to finding out what I should do in this moment... The answers are available. And the problem is when I direct my attention elsewhere.
Is he thinking about what he should do in this moment according to God or the program or anything like that? What's no. determining? If he says, what should I do? What's determined? Who's answering the question? Yes. Right. And that's probably fine if you don't have a disease uh, of, of, uh, of an alcoholic or sexaholic variety, but it's not working well for him. So... All this is to say, to get back to your original uh, comment, um, it might be useful to think of a decision not to take a program action as a decision to act out. Clearly it's not, you know, it's like, oh, I had no intention of drinking. Well, you didn't intend to act out when you said, I'm not going to make these phone calls, I'm not going to go to this meeting. But... That doesn't take into account the way the disease works. It works under my, the radar of my conscious, you know, I, I, I'm very good at coming up with an alternate explanation for why I do something. And the, the fact of the matter is I know that if I don't work this program, this disease will kill me. So I have got to do what God would have me do. I believe when I make such decisions and I end up okay, it's because God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And that is, there's two things I can do with that. I can say, you know, oh, I got away with it. I can keep going. And that's what Jim did. Or I can say, whoa, that wasn't too good. And maybe I even vaguely sensed that it wasn't so good. You say you feel bad afterwards. You didn't act out, but you felt bad. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're vaguely sensing that that wasn't such a good idea. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, listen to that. If you... Go ahead. But is that is that loss of sobriety? Mm-hmm. Um, talk to your sponsor about that. Um, no, not, no not, not making a phone call is not loss of sobriety. No. But, you know, I heard a fella in, in a meeting once. There was this guy talking about his resentment. He had a resentment against someone, and he says, I know the program says you shouldn't resent someone, but, but I think this resentment is justified, and I'll tell you why. And he went on trying to explain to convince himself and everyone else that he was, it, this was a resentment he didn't have to get rid of. And there was an old-timer sitting next to me with a sponsee, and he just went over to a sponsor. This guy was talking and talking and going on about this resentment, and the old-timer just looked up over at his sponsee and said, he's talking about getting drunk. Now, that's what I think he meant, is that this guy had no intention of drinking, but his decision to kind of persist in this uh, resentment was a decision to drink. Now, was he going to drink that night, or was he going to drink the next morning, or was he going to drink in two weeks or two years? I don't know, but if an alcoholic decides to create a safe place for resentment in his life, it's going to kill him. It says so in the big book. And it says so in the experience of many others who have come since the book. So, is that does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't think of it as a... Remember, a decision is different from the action. You know, um, and, and in, from that point of view, you know, it's like, it's not really... Technically true that I decided to act out if I didn't do something that I should do. 
but it's a much better mistake to make to get that wrong than to do it Jim's way and said, oh, I had no intention of drinking. Well, okay. But there's a way to keep you from that place where you decided to drink and and it involves where from where you actually took a drink and it involves you know changing your thinking about your own intentions and motives. I can't trust my intentions and my motives. I can't use them as a justification. That vague sense that I have, well, you know, I didn't make any calls today and I don't feel so good. Trust that feeling. Okay, it's too late to go back and make those calls, but I can make a call now. And I can learn from that result without beating myself up and say, okay, I've got some experience on what happens when I do that. Maybe I can try something different today. So, where were we? Page 79? Is that where we are? Yeah. Okay. Lee, you want to start reading there? Uh, I'm Lee Sexaholic. Hey, Lee. Surrender, step one, two, and three. Our habit brought us into SA, but it was working steps one, two, and three. Time out. I'm getting a, a, let's take a break. Okay, sorry about that. Lee, why don't you start over with that reading? I'm Lee Sexaholic. Surrender, steps one, two, and three. Our habit brought us into SA, but it was working steps one, two, and three that brought us into the program. There's a difference. Until we actually experience these st- these first three steps, we would never enter the liberating reality of the twelve. These three were the arcway through which we left the old life behind and entered the new life of sobriety and inner peace. The deal with deflation and surrender, the way up is down. Okay. Now, steps one, two, and three brought us into the program. There's a difference. What's the difference? What is SA? Fellowship. It's a fellowship. And the steps are the program. We often say, how long you been in the program? Or, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, it's important to remember that that's kind of an abusive terminology. Um, the program is the steps. And I'm not in into the program until I'm working the steps. Working them out in my thinking and living. Okay. So these three were the archway. They deal with deflation and surrender. Meaning what? What is deflation? Sabotaging my ego. Sabotaging it? I don't know. My ego is sabotaged. This is the saboteur. It I think sabotages me. I've got to sabotage it. Well, maybe so. I'd like to think of deflation as getting right-sized. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, deflation uh, has to do, for me, with looking honestly at the results I'm getting from my... Self-centered basis for living, using myself as the uh, as the source of the answer to the question: What do I do next? Surrender. That's a good a good answer. That is the answer that changes 
when I surrender, when I say, what do I do next? And I'm on the self-centered basis for living. What, what do I do? I say, what do I do next? And I'm, and I'm still on the basis of self-will. What do I do next? Well, then I answer the question that I just asked. I think I'll do this. Or I feel like, or I want to. And then I have to create a system of excuses and explanations and justifications uh, and rationalizations for what I choose. I have to defend it. Um, when I change my basis for living, who answers the question? I ask the question, what do I do next? Who answers the question? I'm on a new basis for a living. Who answers the question? Someone other than self? Yes. Bingo. Um, and, you know, they said you could take instructions from a guy on the street, you know, in a homeless shelter, and that would be better than taking instructions from yourself. I think there's a good point in that. I don't recommend trying to find a sponsor in a homeless shelter. You know, I recommend following instructions from someone who has what you want. Um, there are instructions in these books, and there are people who have experience living by them who can teach me how to do the same if that's what I want. So what is surrender in this context? Deflation and surrender. What does that mean? Deflation is admitting that my way isn't working and surrender is becoming willing to try something else. And why does it say the way up is down? Because I'm recognizing that I'm not my solution. My solutions that I'm coming up with aren't, that haven't been effective. And so that's a humbling slash humiliating thing for me to, to, to accept and then go to somebody else for input. Yes. Whether that's other people in the program or... Why is that so hard? I don't know. It, it shouldn't be, but it is. I think maybe it has something to do with that deflation. I've got to get deflated before I become willing to surrender. If I'm if I'm still full of hot air, then I'm going to fight. And uh, it's very painful to my wounded ego to have to admit the truth about the results I'm getting, and to admit that I'm not qualified to manage my own life. So I think that's what the way up is down means. That's what it feels like. It's really the way up. It's not really down. But my references are so skewed from living this way that, you know, everything seems contrary. Okay. Lee? Our way of life brought us to the admission of powerlessness, step one. Without that, we could not see our great need, but the feeling of powerlessness without surrender left us with no real hope. As we saw that others had made this great transition, had been sustained, and were now on the freedom road, we gained belief that restoration and new life were possible for us, too. We came to believe, step two. But even this fell short until we completed this Threefold attitude change by giving up to God. Step three. Our habit cut us down. Seeing sobriety and the life of God in others gave us the hope 
but our own surrender to God brought the connection that finally worked and kept on working. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to get a little picky here. Um, the feeling of powerlessness without surrender left us with no real hope. Going back to the previous chapter, you think maybe that feeling of powerlessness is this deflation they're talking about or is related to it? Yeah. I think there's a connection for sure. So, there's something between deflation and surrender. Um, you know, if I've got no real hope, you know, what is it that gives me hope? You know, when I first felt the whole weight of all that reality crash on my once powerful defenses um, crushing them like a bug I um, feeling of powerlessness without surrender why why hadn't I surrendered I think it was because I didn't know what to surrender to at that point I um and 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 that left me with no real hope. What gave me the hope? I saw others. Saw others who had you know, had something I did not and were able to tell me their stories and I became convinced that they had actually been where I had been. That identification was really important. And I think that's an essential thing that's got to happen. In, in, in step two, I've got to see that you've got the same disease that I've got and you're better. How did that happen? That's what gives me hope. Without that, if, if you were not uh, sexaholics, if you didn't have this story, you could never give me the hope that I need. Let's look at page 18. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, read the italics. But the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. Okay. Properly armed with facts about whom? Himself. Right. I'm not armed with facts about you. And if I speak in such a way to suggest that I am, well, uh, I am misspeaking. I know about my own experience. And that's what I have that I can share. I can't tell you whether it applies to you or not. But this says, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. This is the identification. This is... The, the link that I need to believe, or not even believe, but just to dare to hope that I might be able to find this solution. So identification, very, very important. And it goes on on page 18 to talk about the qualities that I want to aspire to 
when I'm working with a newcomer. Um, you know, keep it on my own experience. Uh, not try to manipulate somebody into uh, believing that I've got their answer, but let them see, hear my experience as long as they wish to and decide that for themselves. There's not, nothing, there's no way, you know, that, that I can make a decision that's going to get them sober. So it's better if I don't try. Um, this is hard for me because I've got something that I've heard described as codependency. Uh, and I think perhaps it really means that I qualify for Essanon. You know, I get sexaholics that ask me to sponsor them and then I want to get them to do right. And I've had to get to the point to where I give my sponsees permission to do whatever they want. Because that's what they're going to do anyway. And they don't need my permission, but if I give it to them, it helps me. I can let go and uh, be more useful. But that all of that is kind of uh, the other side of step two. Um, you know, if, you know, when I, in 2001, <laughs> there was no, there was no uh, reason to discuss, you know, anything about my being uh, useful to others as an example of anything other than how not to live your life. And um, and so I had to look and, and I saw, I, I, I can't say that I identified with everybody in this room, uh, but I identified with enough, you know, that, that, that there was something very powerful that took place. And and I had to be pretty desperate for it for it to happen too. I really had to destroy my life royally to to um, to make it possible for me to uh, to get enough deflation to look for that. Um, and and some fellow in Nashville that I know um, said once that I really have to get hopeless. I have to lose hope in the way that I am living in order to be willing to surrender and try something else. As long as I think this is going to work, and I'm doing it my way, I might get it to work. Now it says, you know, the, uh, for to take the third step in the big book, it says we had to be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. I cannot succeed if I live on self-will. As long as I am have, have a little bit of doubt about that, and I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep fighting. That is not surrender. One thing people ask what surrender is, one thing it is, it is not continuing to fight. So, it's not trying harder. <laughs> okay. All right. So, we're still on page 79. Yeah, we might actually finish this page before 530. Okay. All right, so any comments about this transition from the admission of powerlessness to a decision? That's where I wanted to get picky. He says that step three is giving up to God. There's a sense in which that's true, but I think it's also very important. Joe and Charlie have made this distinction between a decision and carrying out the decision. They said three frogs are on a log and two of them decide to jump off. How many are left? One. No. 
three because they've decided to jump off, but they haven't carried out that decision yet. So, um, thanks for fighting. That was good. Um, uh, the, the, uh, you know, what step do I turn my will and my life over to the care of God? Nope. That's the step that I decide to turn my will over. See? Read step three. Read step three. You can look in the back of the white book or you can look on page 59 of the AA Big Book. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Does it say that we carry out that decision in step three? No. No. We make the decision in step three. We carry out the decision in steps four through twelve. And I think that's an important thing because a lot of people talk about working steps one through three and then stopping. And the truth is that if you don't work steps four through twelve, you didn't make a sincere decision in step three. So, And then I hear other people talk about they, they take back their step three. Well, you know, when I'm carrying out my decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God one day at a time, which is how I receive my life, I encounter things that are blocking me from carrying out my decision today. Manifestations of self. And I don't feel that I take back my third step decision if I lose it with a, with a telemarketer. I think I encounter something that's in the way of me carrying out my decision today. And so I need to face and be rid of. This is an instruction that it says in, in the AA Big Book. I believe it's at the top of page 64. I have to face and be rid of the things in myself that are blocking me. So, carrying out this decision. I think this is important. Joe and Charlie thought it was important. Uh, in terms of interpreting the big book. And Roy says, giving up to God, step three. I think, I think that's accurate. You know, I do give up to God in step three. But, but it, I think the distinction between the decision and carrying out the decision is an important one. Especially when I can, you know, delude myself into thinking that I've actually gotten somewhere. By taking step three. If I decide to go to California, where am I? Am I in California? No. I'm still on my couch until I take steps to carry out that decision. So, this is important for someone like me. All right. Okay, so our own surrender to God brought the connection that finally worked and kept on working. So our own surrender just told us before, what is it that works? What is it necessary for the program to work? Connection? No, it says for the program to work, we must have action. The program of action. The steps don't work unless we work them. And so if our if surrender works, then it must include action. Not any action, but specific actions. But surrender is not inaction. And it is not the old actions. 
trying harder with the old actions. So it's important to make that connection. All right, Lee, will you continue? At first, the grief or sponsor often became the higher power since we had left the true God far behind. But if we stayed in that interim condition, it was dangerous, like a car stuck on a high center spinning its wheel and going nowhere. Our own experience taught us that the sooner our surrender was to God, however we understood or did not understand him, the sooner we made the transition from self to life. I couldn't just surrender my lust. I had to surrender me. Okay. Good stuff. You know, I tried. I started making a list of, of places in the big book that it talks about surrender. Because... I've heard people say, what is the surrender thing? Well, surrender is not trying to figure out surrender. But, um, you know, there's a lot of places in the book that describe surrender. So, um, page 80 is one of those places, page 79 and 80. All right. So we are now at a change of heart. All right, keep going. Yeah. A change of heart. Steps 1, 2, and 3 describe the change of heart from self to God, without which no real change in our lives can come about. There seems to be two, two, sorry, there seems to be no such thing as surrender in the abstract. Surrender is a giving up of something specific. Of course, we all had to give up the right to think and practice our habits. What we didn't realize was that we come to this crossroad burden with a load of other negative attitudes. We, th- we found that if we tried surrendering our lust or holding on to our resentment, anger, pride, or dependency, for example, it didn't work. These other passions were often manifested in our attitudes toward parents, authority figures, spouses, or other essay members. For example, one woman discovered that surrender included giving up her right to be nasty to her husband. And one man had to give up emotionally brutalizing his wife and children. Another who wanted to give up street sex but still have a relationship discovered he was counting on the relationship to save him from his promiscuity and that surrendering lust has to be all or nothing. And when it came to the marriage bed, many of us discovered it was the last refuge of lust and that here too surrender was the only way. When we finally came to the moment of truth, whatever it was or however slowly we came to it, surrender had to be unconditional. Okay. Surrender. Giving up something specific, not abstract. Again, I think this relates to action versus thought. Surrender in the abstract is is some metaphysical concept. It's philosophizing. Surrender concretely is giving up something specifically. Giving something up requires action. Is that true? Well, it depends on what it is. Let's see. Something that I gave up. Well, I gave up uh, going 
blithely through the woods in, in shorts after I got really bad poison ivy once while picking blackberries. In fact, I've pretty much given up picking blackberries for all practical purposes. It didn't require an act of surrender. Why not? Because I'm not powerlessness over picking, I'm not powerless over picking blackberries. I'm not powerless over walking through poison ivy. I just decided not to do it, and my decision was effective. Now, when I decide to give up lust, when did that ever work? Did you ever, did you ever try to give up lust? How many times did you decide to give up lust? 3,000. Okay, good. He kept count. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I think I stopped keeping count somewhere around... Every other day for 20 years. I think, I think it was somewhere around, uh, you know, four, 500 that I stopped keeping count. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> um, you know, seven times 70. You know, that's the point. <laughs> once, you're, once you're over that. So, so... Um, What's the effective decision that I can make? Surrender. That's the only effective decision I can make. Deciding to stop doesn't work. You know, I keep doing it. Keep Keeping doing it doesn't work either. There's all these problems that develop as a result of me keeping doing it. So, surrender is what I need. And this type of surrender requires action. Let's look in the big book again. Back to chapter 3, a little further along. Page 39. Fred. Fred is partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home. is happily married and the father of promising children of college age. He is so attractive a personality that he makes friends with, with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it is Fred. To all appearance, he is a stable, well-balanced individual. Yet, he is alcoholic. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he had gone to recover from a bad case of jitters. It was his first experience of this kind, and he was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. The doctor intimated strongly that he might be worse than he realized. For a few days, he was depressed about his condition. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so, in spite of his character and standing. Okay. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. That's the decision that we're talking about. That's ineffective. And they go on in pages 40 to 42 to describe um, that it was in the, how it was ineffective. And, uh, but, but first, before we go to that, why is it ineffective? Because he's powerlessness. That's right. Page 45 in the big book. Lack of power. That was our dilemma. I'd love to stop, but I don't have the power. So when I decide to stop, it's an ineffective decision. 
not that I don't really mean it. It's not that I don't have enough willpower. Well, uh, as willpower goes commonly, you know, there, there's no amount of willpower that's adequate. There, no human power can, can make me stop. So what is the effective decision? I go over to page 42. We're going to skip some of the stuff in between where it describes what happened when he, after he made this decision to quit drinking. We get another proof that, that it's not an effective decision. Go to the bottom. Then they outlined. Then they outlined the spiritual answer and program of action, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Though I had been only a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow. But the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. That was not easy. But the moment I made up my mind to go through the process, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved, as in fact it proved to be. Read one more sentence. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. Okay, and then he goes on to talk about how infinitely satisfying that is. Okay, but what I want to point to is it says, first off, it says the term program of action twice. was pretty drastic. Had to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. What's a, a, a conception? An idea. An idea or belief. Okay, so this probably has something to do with deflation and surrender, throwing several lifelong conceptions away. But the moment I made up my mind, that's a decision, right? To go through with the process, and things got better. So what's the effective decision here? A decision to... Go with the process. Go with the process. Which process? The 12 steps. Yes, the program of action described here, which is the 12 steps. And this is the, the effective decision, the step three decision. The decision to carry, that, that must be carried out in the remaining steps. So if I decide to go through with the process, then I decide to work the steps. And, of course, it's implied, since everything begins with sobriety, that sobriety is an essential uh, part of going through the process. But it's also a result of truly going through the process. And it says, moreover, the last sentence that Lauren read, quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. Not some of them, not particular ones, not just the alcohol problem or the lust problem. All my problems. And that means that all my problems are really about my basis for living. Is that really true? You believe that? Do you? Do you believe that working a program with spiritual principles will solve your 
problem with your boss? My experience is that if I'm working the principal, the, it's almost like it's not just very much of a problem anymore. What is it? Um, like relational conflict type stuff. But most of my problems are outside of me. Things that don't sit well with how I want them to go or people who don't act the way I want them to act, make idiot decisions or whatever based upon what I want to happen. And when I'm living on, when I'm working the spiritual principles of the steps, they're just not those things that would be problems are not as much in my face and flying all over me as they would be. Does that make sense? Okay. Since this is the first time I've sprung the 12 and 12 on you, I'm going to <laughs> read this thing from page 90 of the 12 and 12 in step 10. It is a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with us. So that's the spiritual axiom page. And now decided I have page 47 of the 12 and 12 written down where it says, we thought conditions drove us to drink. And when we tried to correct these conditions and found that we couldn't to our entire satisfaction, our drinking went out of hand and we became alcoholics. It never occurred to us that we needed to change ourselves to meet conditions, whatever they were. And I think this is what Lauren is describing, that if he works the program, then he reacts differently to the same situation. He's not disturbed, as it says on page 90. It's not that they won't do right, it's that I'm reacting with a disturbance, you know, in the condition of them not doing right. Under that circumstance, that's how I'm reacting. That is my problem. And the spiritual solution will solve that problem, and thus it will solve all my problems. The world continues as it is, but if I'm sufficiently connected to God, it's not a problem. It says it also on page 45, this emphasis of the big book, Um, where we just read lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how were we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. I really only got one problem. And it says that I need to find the power that will solve the problem. I don't find the power and then I solve the problem. If I I try to solve the problem, I go, go, go back to that issue of having lack of power. But if I surrender... If I decide to go with, through with this process, I learn how to have access to that power that can keep me undisturbed or can get me undisturbed if I become, undis- if I become disturbed. And I can learn to live successfully. I can learn to live the way I'm supposed to live according to my own values, according to what I believe I'm supposed to be. And then I don't have that bad feeling telling me, 
something is wrong that I always had that became so great I wanted to die many times. But so now I feel overwhelmed. Okay. Um, Go I mean, on. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you're you're really seeing the magnitude of what we're talking about. But uh, go on. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. And it's, it's overwhelming. You just have to do a day's work in a day's time. You're looking at the whole big thing. And yeah, it is overwhelming. I think after a while, you begin to see how much work you did in the disease. And this mm-hmm. is actually less work. It really is. But it, but it, it's overwhelming. It's a lot of work, and then it's a little bit of my little perfectionism. If I don't check every damn box, then it's a failure. Yeah. So and then, and then I just freak out. So you need to learn how to have a successful failure. <laughs> I don't like that. Yeah, I know you don't. A little <laughs> deflation will help with that. A little deflation and a little so how surrender. How do you do that? Uh, you follow directions. You, first off, you don't have to have your failure until you have it. You don't have to have your failure until you. You're not. There's nothing going on that's wrong right now, so you don't have to live that. You only have to live it when it happens, and when it happens, you'll have the power. If you're if you're seeking for it, in in, in the right place, which is in these principles, and in the experience of others that also need to live in these principles. So, overwhelm, overwhelming feelings come from, not from God, but from me getting disturbed because I'm taking too much of yesterday and too much of tomorrow and trying to deal with it today. Today, I only need to deal with today, and God will give me what I need to deal with today. Give us this day our daily bread. Sandy Beach said he wanted to say, give us this day our daily bread and eight loaves in the pantry in case this stupid prayer doesn't work. <laughs> and I can relate. And that's, that's you know the overwhelming feeling. But if I stay in the moment, and that's what step 10 is about. And when we get to that, you know, that's really what step 10 is about. It's about staying in the moment. If you take the problem that you've just gotten overwhelmed with, and you take out everything that doesn't have the word now and doesn't have the word today in it, and look at it again, I don't think you're going to be overwhelmed. Yeah. We keep it it real like that. And that works. Okay. I feel like I need to clarify, too, when I was talking about, you know, my experience with working the spiritual principles and my problems aren't that big. Usually, my experience is somebody does something or some circumstance happens, I get blown for, not for a loop, get beyond angry, have to bite my tongue, leave, go pray, Maybe call somebody, pray again, pray a third and a fourth time, and finally, <laughs> at some point, uh, you know, it kicks in and I'm able to accept the life on life's terms for that moment. Just well, that that's day. doing it. 
I guess. But that is doing it. But it works. But it's yes, ugly it and it's it's muddy. I mean, it's it's not. This is no zen. <laughs> so, <laughs> so is that good enough for your perfectionism, Lee? <laughs> that just makes it scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, all you got to do is 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 that, and learn to be okay with yourself, and you don't have to do it by midnight tonight. You have to learn that one day at a time. So when I get disturbed, when you get, you just just said it. You you get disturbed. Yeah. You haven't you haven't gotten so well that you're not getting disturbed in those situations, but you are keeping your mouth shut, which is growth. Yeah, it is. And then you are doing the next right thing, and you are looking to the place that actually can address the problem of your being disturbed by this situation of life. Yeah. And then what happens? <laughs> I can. I mean, it, once I come to terms with the fact that it it's okay the way it is for that moment, going back to that whole acceptance is the answer chapter and the big book where it basically says, you know, that things are the way they're supposed to be right now, and um, and I'm okay with it. Not okay with it. I just get some peace about it enough to let it go, but. Um, there's still that battle of I know what's best, but if I act on it and try to impose it on other people, then it's going to create havoc. <laughs> and I know that. <laughs> and so um, I can live with my insane idea that I know what's best and still not suffer the consequences. <laughs> or at least not as acutely as maybe I would otherwise. Yeah, an old, on it. an old sponsor says that nobody ever got locked in an insane asylum for being insane. And they got locked in there for acting insane. Yeah. And they never got released for being sane. They got re- released for acting sane. And so as long as I don't actually act according to what my head is doing, then I get to walk around here with all you guys. And uh, <laughs> let's just be careful who we tell about what's going on in our heads. <laughs> okay. All right, let's finish this little section here. Surrender had to be unconditional. Well... It can have conditions, it's just none of them can be my conditions. <laughs> okay. Surrender as an attitude became, becomes the key to this spiritual program and the summary of its very essence. Once its initial turnaround is made, it gives us faith in the surrender process. At each subsequent stage, there will be a, a sticking point where a specific attitude or action will have to be acknowledged and drop before we can be comfortable comfortable again. Surrender is not the only is not only the key to the twelve step program in sexual sobriety, but to a joyous and purposeful life with others. The surrender required in steps one, two, and three became the fountainhead out of which all things flowed in practicing the other steps. Because of this attitude change, we would later be able to look at ourselves honestly for what we were and confess it to another. Four and five. We would be able to acknowledge and unclench our other defects as they become, as they became apparent. Six and seven. Without such a surrender, we would never think of taking steps eight, nine, and ten to begin righting the wrongs to others. 
and without it, we would be unable to have any conscious union with God in prayer and meditation. 11. And give ourselves to others. 12. Beginning at the begin- beginning at the beginning was the only way into spiritual recovery for us. And if we came from some other 12-step program, many of us had to begin all over again as though we had never heard of the steps. There don't seem to be any shortcuts for us. In summary, for us, surrender is to change an attitude of the inner person, and that makes life possible. It is the great beginning, the the insignia and watchword of our program. And no amount of knowledge about surrender can make it a fact until we simply give up, let go, and let God. When we surrender our freedom, we become truly free. Okay, thank you. And um, so, I don't see a lot of specific instructions here. Um, This surrender as an attitude and this change of heart that he's describing For me, it's something that happens to me when I decide to go through the steps and then carry out that decision. It's not something that I can do. I don't have the power to create this new attitude in myself. Um, I'm really, (laughs) you know, reacting to uh, circumstances that are outside of my control, uh, both my powerlessness and then the unmanageability I've created, and and and. For a while, the the circumstances will motivate me to do this. Uh, But at some point, life will improve enough to where those circumstances, the crap that I'm having to deal with, will be better and I won't be motivated by that anymore. I've got to have found a new motivation when that happens. I don't know how many times I saw someone in the halfway house uh, start you know, you know, they came in and they weighed about 95 pounds and were missing a few teeth and had got, had their car stolen by uh, some other crack addicts and they had no money and they had no job and their family had told them for the, you know, fourth time, you know, don't ever come back. We don't want to see you again. And they were willing to do a lot of stuff and they came in and they, they got some food and they got uh, gained a little weight, and they got a little medical care, and they got a little job, made a little money, you know, got a used car, and they were ready to go back and try it some more their way. And I saw people come in multiple times, halfway going through that cycle. Not all of them made it out alive when they did that. There was a couple of guys I know that, um, you know, there's about five or six guys that I know through the halfway house that, you know, that one time they left like they always had, and uh, we got a call. They weren't coming back this time. You know, one guy froze his heart out, still had, uh, you know, uh, you know, half an ounce of cocaine and $800 left. He was just dead in his motel room, in his boxers. Um, and, um, you know, we don't really, we don't really know how that, that happens. Uh, but, but, you know, if we, if we become willing to go through this process, then a change inside of us happens to where we can do the actions to carry out our third step decision today. And we don't have to have our rear end on fire. Always to do it. Although that can help 
sometimes if if uh, we are getting too close to the flames. Um, so anyway, um, that's enough out of me. Um, any final comments before we close? No, other than it's been good. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's, it's exactly what I need to do to hear myself say these things. Um, and have been told to me to try to motivate me to keep living according to him because it really has gotten good. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have the same motivations that I had when I was in the halfway house. I don't have uh, a divorce hanging over my head. I don't have a prosecution and a conviction hanging over my head. I don't have the loss of a career and a apparently dead-end life, you know, to sit in. Those things are being made right. So, um, <clears throat> I really, I say this a lot, and, and, and I used to hear people say it, and I thought they were just, you know, I thought it was just a nice thing to say, you know, but, but here it is in the book, a, a big book on page 94. It is important for him to realize that your attempt to pass this on to him plays a vital part in your own recovery. Actually, he may be helping you more than you are helping him. Make it plain he is under no obligation to you, that you only hope that he will try to help other alcoholics when he escapes his own difficulties. So, um, for me, uh, that's very sincere. Um, I, I, uh, I appreciate your thanks and your welcome, but this is a vital part of my own recovery. You're under no obligation to me. I do hope that you will try to help others or continue helping others uh, when you, uh, you know, recover. And, um, and uh, I'm very grateful to be part of this thing. Thank you. Thank you. And let's circle up and close. Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you.